Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Broadly speaking, we kind of have a mix of, of guests. On the one hand, we have serious meditation teachers, uh, and some of them are really fascinating and deeply weird, and that's uh, cool. The other thing we do is we bring in people who are really interesting and doing fascinating things out in the world who also happen to meditate, and I'm, I am just obsessed with that connection between success, however you want to define that, and what role meditation can play in that. Um, so our next guest combines these two things beautifully. His name is Adam Shankman. He is a, a many, many things uh, in the entertainment world. Uh, he's a director. Uh, here are just a few of his films. A Walk to Remember, Bringing Down the House, The Pacifier, the remake of Hairspray in 2007. Uh, he's also a choreographer. Uh, he was a judge on So You Think You Can Dance on yeah. CBS. Uh, and he's an author. He's got a new young adult uh, book out, and uh, it's called Girl About Town. We'll be talking about that in a second. And the reason why he's sitting here in front of me right now, he's a meditator. Yeah. So thank you for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. Really nice to meet you. Nice to meet I you, I like too. you already. I like you, too. Thank you. I like you, too. Thank and you. I don't like many people. No, I do like people. <laughs> you seem pretty happy. I am. You know what? It's like, it's like a chronic thing. People, uh, you know, it's funny because I have an enormous amount of darkness in me. I'm, I'm a... I have had all sorts of challenges in my life, mostly related, I would, I would actually say, to my sexuality uh, of being gay, and, and which, when I was young, was problematic. And because the culture was so much different than it is now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Even uh, in Hollywood, where you grew up? Yeah, well, I mean, I might as well... Oh, okay, uh, so I'll tell you sort of the, the backstory, because this gets into sort of the road that got me in to sitting in this chair basically and talking about yeah. meditating which oh. was when i was three i was a, an incredibly happy kid i was th the singingest dancingest kid in the world joy but as i and i watched a lot of movies they were always on my mom played a lot of musical soundtracks i loved it but i was gravitating towards the female characters and i had started like even putting on like my dad's t-shirts and belting them and I was like and I love that I wasn't like Maria in West Side Story I was Anita because I liked her songs but I mean it was like the craziest <laughs> thing anyway at some point I went into some sort of uh, hysteria when I was a kid like a, a little tantrum of some sort and I said to my dad I wanted to be a girl now I can tell you right now because I re remember a lot of this period of my life strangely that I remember I, I can't remember what I did yesterday but I can tell you what I did when I was three what I remember loving about uh, the relationship between men and women is that I saw my father protecting my mother and my uncles protecting my aunts. And there was this sort of like the way that men cherished the women in my family and held them in such regard and high esteem. And then the fact that I, I sort of liked the look and the way that dresses moved and all of that. I just liked what the that relationship of being cared for mm -hmm. and what I saw there. And so obviously I had no kind of sense of sexuality at that point, but I identified with women and my parents were very young and were concerned. And so they met with a doctor who was doing a study on uh, sexual identity and they liked him and he was nice. And so they agreed to put me in this program with him, which you know was all fine and well. Um, and unbeknownst to them, they accidentally put me into conversion therapy. 
Whoa. And like try to try to not to 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 get to stop gone. you from yeah, yeah. okay. And I was trying to come up with from the right that way to time, say that. for then a very long period of time, I was being given by my parents who didn't know what was going on to this man who was basically telling me I was a defective human being. Whoa. I had to lie in order to survive. My parents would leave me. I would have no friends. I would not I would spend my life alone, isolated, separate, um, and rejected um, because I was fundamentally defective. So this is a horrible thing to happen. It's a, to a terrible thing boy. to happen to a little boy. Yeah, yeah. And, and and but your mom, if I read correctly, she was a therapist, right? So she is, but she didn't know what was going on. Okay, but she she's. I mean, just the fact that she was a therapist, I'm jumping to the assumption that she was probably open minded, but she had no idea what was. Both going on. Both my parents were open minded, but they were again they were very young and they wanted to make sure that I was going to be well adjusted. It wasn't like they didn't want me to be gay. It was just that they wanted to make sure that I was going to be okay. And their concern wasn't that you were saying you were gay. Their concern was. You were saying you wanted to be, be a the, girl, um, the and I'm a, I was three years old, yes, you know, yes, and yes. so they just wanted information, mm-hmm. and I do not blame my parents for this. I don't. It was a uh, really unfortunate thing that happened. The issue that happened then, bes- with besides a lifelong issue with dealing with an internal voice that is endlessly preaching shame to me, um. Because I now take full responsibility for dragging that voice into my adult life. You know, he stopped talking to me at a certain point, and I became the voice. But can I just stop you right there for a second? Sure. Why should you take responsibility for dragging that into your adult life? I feel like you have no responsibility for that. It's not your fault at all. That's just my opinion as a, as a guy who just met you. And, and no, no, no. I feel In, like that shouldn't be blamed on you. No, no, no. It's not blamed on me, but there were, you know, certainly later in my life— Certainly in my adult life, I had nothing but evidence that I, first of all, everything he said was not true. I ended up, you know, coming out. I was universally loved. I was, I was successful. The weird thing has always been for me in relationship to my work, the thing that sort of ended up me up in that chair, which was all of my fantasy life and all of that and all my creation and all of that ended up not only not being killed, but became the reason I'm successful and what I do. So, I, so I'm so i still working on my relationship to my success because anybody, anytime anybody congratulates me on anything, anything I wince and I get angry at them. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very strange, I mean, not like overtly angry. I just feel like a sense of like because, shame. Because you were taught to hate the part of you that is the wellspring of all success now. Yeah, my creative self. Anyway, that all that having been said, so there was a moment at which, uh, you know, uh, through therapy and whatever, I should have sort of known, like, you know, like you know, everything worked out and it's okay. But I really just needed to hold on to that shame. Like it was, it became my part and meshed in my identity. And this is what and remember all this is in response to you seem like a really happy guy yeah yeah the strange thing is while the all of as i was getting more successful and more successful and more successful i was doing things everything that i was identified with was about hope and happiness and Hairspray. not settling yeah. and fighting for yourself and and you know doing the right thing and yet i had this horrible darkness in me that ended up manifesting itself in a lot of drinking and using and all of that. And then when I had my first experience with something not 
going well work-wise. I just went down. When we come back, what was the project that sent you over the edge? After this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. For people in need of serious pain relief, Lidocare has created a -a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu for long-lasting relief you can wear. Available at Walgreens and CVS. The drinking and using. Yeah. How bad did that get, and what were you using? Bad. I, well, I, well, here's the thing. I started when I was 15 mm. and never stopped um, until, oh, my God, two and a half years ago, which means I, it was like 35 years of solid using. I discovered cocaine when I was that age. 15? Yeah. And when I discovered alcohol, I was able to become social, and I was able to not deal with the ugly voice in my head and all that. And then, of course, later in life, when it turns against you, suddenly it actually ends up turning the corner and it amplifies the, the ugly voice, voice yeah. and all of that. So and, were you drinking and using every day? Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, I, by the end, certainly by the end, I was drinking every day. I never was an everyday user. That was, yeah, I was yeah. never an everyday user. But what happened with me was alcohol became a um, a gateway kind of for me to do that so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what was the project that went pear-shaped that sent you over the edge rock of ages rock of ages the musical yeah. did the that movie. not go well oh the, the movie the yeah. movie i didn't do well it didn't do well and it wasn't and it was not about something that i understood or particularly like, like i ended up i i don't want to bash the movie and you directed this movie i directed it yeah. and but i had a i had this like really gnawing suspicion that what was good about it was that it was like this great fun karaoke play that people really loved but that it didn't contain enough substance to ever really be a movie but everybody around me was telling me no it's a movie it's a movie it's a movie and I didn't listen to myself 
And I should have, but I didn't. And I made it, and I love everybody who I made it with. I don't have a problem with that. But I have a problem with myself for... Well, here's the good news. I'll never do something like that again where I just absolutely shut myself down and say, like, no, just do it anyway. Like, if I have an, an instinct about not doing it, I won't do it now, you know? So I, there was just no room for how I felt or saw the world or anything like that in in that movie. And I, I pushed some of it in it. I, I, I got some of it in there. But it, it ended up... So anyway, because it didn't perform, I ended up getting really dark really dark and what do you can you put some meat on the bone there what, what do you mean by dark well that's when the daily drinking started and a lot of isolating and i just i i, I just saw myself as such a loser i i you know it was i was i was so my whole identity was in shrouded in disappointment um and yet it was something that i thought was coming for a long time so then i got proven wrong the bad way and um and uh, if i so in the year 2013 you went to rehab do i have that right? yeah i checked myself i made a decision one after you know it's that weird thing where one one morning i woke up in you know what looked like you know basically a crime scene and i went you know what this is this is terrible this is really really terrible and what did not bother me was the idea of not drinking what made me uncomfortable was not knowing what was on the other side of it and what was going to um soothe me and what was going to make me feel okay and what was going to make me um, be able to manage my um, stress level and my, you know, the voices and all of that. So, and, and not like, not like demented voices. Like, I mean, just like the negative critical voices. Yeah. 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 And um, the inner critic. Yeah. And so, but I said, you know what I, I need to do? I need to understand what this is all about. There's, I've been doing this for so long. I need to understand why. Because I didn't, I also was not one of those like, let's have a drink. Like I'd go out to dinner with friends and we'd have a drink or like a glass of wine with dinner. And then I'd come home and literally flip on Law & Order SVU, like marathon, and drink a bottle of vodka, a full bottle of vodka Whoa. every single night. Whoa. And How are you by myself, the next day? I was fine. I was fine. I used to joke that, you know, people are like, are you hungover? I was like, I call it awake. You know, like that. So, and I was like a great. And it was my your first, baseline. It was my baseline, and my people, and my, I absolutely was functioning. And my, you know, a lot of people were really surprised when I checked myself in, and I, nothing happened. Nothing big, catastrophic happened out in the world. And I, but what happened is I saw a piece of time where I thought I could disappear, and nobody would know the difference. No one would miss me. And because um, work was shut down, it was December. So it's like, you know, Hollywood shuts down in December. Mm -hmm. So I took care of some obligations. I did a bunch of research. I found a place where I wanted to go that I felt comfortable with. And I checked myself in for a month. And I came out after a month. And I've been, you know, happy as a clam ever since. No relapse? No, no. No, no urges? No, no. no, I mean, I mean... There's always an urge for a sense of relief. There's always like, oh, like, I, I got no medicine no more. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And so, but there's never been anything threatened. It's because I have that very clear 
um, not just memory, but but knowledge that I don't. When I drink, I don't want to have a drink and relax. I want to obliterate. Yeah. And so since that does that no longer sounds appealing, you know. Well, which is not to say that I haven't had some really challenges, challenging times where I've been very uncomfortable since I've been sober. I've been incredibly uncomfortable. I've had some really challenging stuff happen, but I'm, uh, but I've gotten through it. Like, pretty much sailed through it. Good for you. Yeah, what did I you, feel what, lucky. What did you find? That you said you were worried that there would be nothing to soothe you. Have you found things that are soothing? Well, you know, listen. If I if I want to quiet my head, because I no longer have that critical voice screaming at me. That that has largely gone away. The 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 one screaming that you're defective Deficient and bad and all of because that. I don't gay. really. Well, for everything. Yeah, like I, I mean, the, the gay thing was the gay, the gay thing again was a gateway to yeah. like my overall being and self. Yeah. But you know, I, I I probably watch a little too much TV. Because I like to go, I'll tell you what I have a problem with that amps me up and kills me is I'm addicted to the news cycle. That is a huge problem for me because you want to talk about something that just creates agitation and and stress. It's like, it's crazy. So I now have to like kind of monitor myself and, you know, I live in LA and, or, or I live back and forth, but I'm in LA most of the time and I just want to be on those news stations all the time. And it's a problem. Like it's a well, problem. you know, speaking as somebody who works in the news business, I don't think it's a problem. We need people like you or else I'd be unemployed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't blame you. I blame uh, I blame myself. But and, and we can talk through this, but because I think that it's that weird. It's that weird fascinate. It's that car wreck thing. It's like you're just staring at the car wreck. And if you stare at it long enough, hopefully you can, like, wrap your brain around it. And the truth of the matter is I can't wrap my brain around any of it. Well, here's what I'd say about that. And I do want to start talking meditation at some point because I know that's mm-hmm. become a big part of your life. But I, I think while I'm obviously a huge fan of the news, I've spent the last um, uh, several decades working in news. You have to understand that we don't report on the plane that lands safely. We report on problems. And so if you're going to be consuming news, you're going to get a view of the universe that is inherently negative. Yeah, yes. absolutely. So through this process of getting of, of becoming sober, you also found meditation. I found meditation. So, and, uh, you, know, I, you know, I want to be very careful about how I say the word prayer. But, I, you know, I you know, it's sort of like I have sort of um, morning ritual and evening ritual where I'm, I sort of make sure that I am starting my day with a sense of gratitude and um, trying to look at everything that is positive and and to basically say to myself, I am lucky to be alive. It works. It works. And you know what? We have a negativity bias. We have these prefrontal cortices at the front of our brain, uh, and 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 they are wired to look out for saber-toothed tigers. Nonetheless, we're we're wired for threat detection, and we are not wired for like listing the things that we're grateful for. Well, that, that and when explains, you do it, it feels really good. That explains the tone of the presidential election right now. <laughs> is everything, you know, it is very fight or flight, you know, everything, and it is, a, and that is the great appeal. Because it is hitting those buttons in the public that are responding in a fight or flight apocalyptic way. 
And I mean, we are literally being told that the world is on fire. And it's not that pieces of the world are not on fire, but it's not like the whole world. You know what I mean? There's just no sense of progress is I mean it's I'm telling you people it's are angry. People, people are, are angry. people are angry but people are telling us to be angry also no one's telling us it's going to be okay they're saying if you don't do what I'm telling you you will die you will you will all die and it creates fight or flight response so it's and that that creates all that activity inside of you. So tell me about meditation. What, how did that happen for you? What did you what kind? Well, it you... was recommend as I got sober, it was just sort of recommended as something. Listen, my mom is like a pretty spiritual person and she always recommended that I do it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> There's no way. Which um, was my uh, reaction to it. Too. The hooey. You know yes. what I mean? I was like, you got to be if I'm not thinking, how am I actually doing? You know what I mean? It's like it made no sense to me. But what was really stopping was it because I knew when I stopped and just sat alone with myself, what was loud was the critical voice. So, you know, if that's what's going on in your head, it's really hard to, you know, quiet that, um, especially if you don't know who you are without it. Mm -hmm. So once I got, when I was, I went to a great, uh, rehab where it was really mostly therapy, lots of group therapy, lots of individual therapy. Um, Once I really dealt with a lot of my critical issues um, and uh, and that kind of that blockage um, disintegrated and I started going like, I'm not that bad a person, I guess, you know, and I started opening up to the concept that I was okay. And it really just dissolved. I mean, it's crazy, but it really dissolved. I suddenly became open to yeah, plus I was also like I was also willing to do anything that anybody said to actually feel better. Do you know what I mean? If so I, I, I really was. And it wasn't about that like militant kind of sobriety, like if you don't do what I'm telling you that there was like they were like, You might as you're here, you might as well try this. And I was like, Well, I'm I might as well. I mean, there's no reason not to. And so I started meditating there. At the rehab, yeah. At the rehab. What, what kind of meditation did they teach you? Or what, what was the... Pro- what more was like the... Qigong and like all of that kind so of stuff. So moving was, meditation. Well, that, there was... There, well, we did, we did everything. I mean, we had... We did a lot of yoga practice. We did um, a lot of uh, visualization. Mm-hmm. A lot of visualization. It's um, a classic technique. Yeah, we did. And, um, and when they would have you do visualization, what were you visualizing? You know, mostly um, positive, you know, sort of like radiating whatever light that you had in there, like unearthing that and coming out. We also did like, wait, hold on, crazy, crazy. Have you ever done this thing where you do like a half an hour of fast breathing where you never stop? Holosync, I think it's called. I can't remember what the title is. I've never done it, it but I've heard of it. You literally start to hallucinate. Yeah, it puts you in an altered state. You go into an altered state. I would have like nervous breakdowns when we would do I mean, full sobbing, hysterical, unblocking, like the craziest thing because the imagery that was going, when you get that much oxygen going into your brain, it is nuts. And I started just going like, Wow, I am a lot more 
I'm like a kind person. I actually behave kindly to people and I'm I'm a I'm a really good friend and really good son and but I just had so much self-loathing and it just started to evaporate hmm. while when I was doing these different practices. So but what became the most useful for me because I really needed guided meditation because I, I just felt like I did. It was uh, because it was available, so I might as well. Um, and so I just started downloading apps. And now I still use that. I have just been recommended by all of my friends who do TM tell me that I have to start doing TM. And so I just made an appointment with a TM teacher when I get back to Los Angeles. So, I mean, all of this stuff, it can be incredibly helpful. All of it can be incredibly helpful. And, and you were talking at the root of the issue for you is the voice in your head. And what you want to do is create a different relationship to that voice. Because you're always yeah. going to have a voice, right? You're always going to have thoughts. And sometimes those thoughts are going to be negative, largely self-referential. Um, and so you just want to have a different relationship to it. And meditation is a, a really good tool to do that. Well, the other thing that I got really uh, clear with what I – what really – became sort of a cornerstone of my sort of life practice, not just my meditation practice, but is this, uh, I'm not big on, I, I, I have a problem with my victimhood. Like I, I do not see myself as a victim in any way, shape or form where I think that nagged at me somewhere inside of me once upon a time. And even though I am a boss and I am, when I say yes to doing a movie, hundreds of people are getting employed and millions and millions of dollars and all of that. But there was, there was always something in me that had a, a sadness. Um, and, you know, a lot of my funny comes from that place. So, and by the way, the uh, people who have a lot of that are oftentimes incredibly charismatic and which is not to say that I am, but it's sort of like, it became like part of my thing, you know? And, and yet all my work is so sunny. It's all so happy and it's all so hopeful. And I would and I look at it and I'm like, who did that? Like it's it it's like a magic trick. Like because it's almost like my real self was coming out and my mind wasn't controlling it in some strange way. So it's not like you were faking it. It was actually coming from some deep place that was papered over by this negative voice. Yeah. So I think I think that that's kind of what I've I've come to discover now in my work going forward I'm really interested in exploring m much more like a adult kind of work and much more intensive character work and much more uh things that are not quite necessarily so family which is not to say I won't do family stuff but it's sort of like I I sort of made my mark doing projects that no one thought was going to work and it was really for like the sort of broad family general audience stuff, which was just totally ironic that it was me doing it. But and yet it was all super successful. Like nobody thought the pacifier was going to work or like a Vin Diesel family movie with him and babies and all of that. <laughs> By the way, least of all me, like I didn't. And it, you know, it was like my biggest movie. It was like, it's crazy. Like these things that I made ended up just feeling so hopeful and happy and, and right. And it, I was like, that's weird. So now that you're feeling happier, you're going to do darker stuff. I'm available to do, well, I, I want to say more than like, you know, there's a family for everyone. Like, I want to say more in life than that. And I have, like, for example, here's a story. 
I have a project set up at HBO that is the Stonewall story, but told from the perspective largely of the guys who opened it, which were three mob kids, Italian straight guys, businessmen who are like 19. Just for the, the uninitiated, this is the um, this is the Stonewall riots. Uh, yeah. This is a bar in the West Village where there were riots um, by the largely gay clientele against uh, gay bashing and... and well, the police uh, and, and, uh, and the world, by the way. It was like, listen, the world was on fire at that point anyway. It was like just coming out of the summer of love mm-hmm. and, and Mayor Lindsay was going on and, and the Black Panthers and you know the, the counterculture movement. Everything was going on in the world. And on that block, you know, it just the oppression of the gay community just exploded and the riots broke out for three days and all that. But what, you know, people have all sort of heard and know peripherally that the mob was sort of involved. What was true is they actually owned it and they ran it and they ran it with these, you know, with the handshake agreement that the gay community was going to run it. But they were going to, you know, it was their bar and the gay community who they apparently had no judgments on like the sexual nature of them they were a revenue stream and they were happy to be two they were like these two um outlaw cultures the mob and the Mm -hmm. gay community who were being both beaten up by the law who agreed to sort of make a handshake so that they could you know help each other so is this project going forward it's just being written now it's being written now. and A far cry from Hairspray. Well, exactly. But it's like it's a story that really resonates with me because I think it is fascinating how everything I think would be true, which is that, you know, a crime family and a crime culture that has so much testosterone back in 1967 must have been some of the worst oppressors. And in fact, they were the guys that lit the fuse. It's crazy. So it's like that's a really fun project for me you know i'm working on you know listen this is gonna sound pretty gay but like the real story of gypsy rose lee's family that the musical gypsy is based on their the true story of it their mother was like a bipolar alcoholic lesbian who was one of the great child abusers of history and yet somehow she became this monument of musical theater lore. I mean, there's a reason why it's called, you know, Gypsy, a musical fable. And so I have a project where I'm telling the true story of it and how really kind of Gypsy ended up kind of becoming her mother. And there was like a questionable murder that slash suicide that happened. You know, it's it's more interesting. And so it's dark, like that's dark stuff. But it's again, all of it is very character intensive. I'm interested in human stories. Um, just events on their own don't necessarily do it for me. I like to know what's going on with the people in it. Here's what's interesting to me. I mean, all of that is fascinating, but what, what under it is something that I'm I'm curious about, which is a lot of people worry that if they fix their psychological problems or or let's just say reduce the psychological pain uh, that's accrued in their life, start meditating, get happier, they're going to lose their edge. But what I'm hearing from you is you just did all of the aforementioned. And in fact, your work may get edgier. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Well, I'm, I'm not afraid anymore to explore any part of me or any interest of mine at this point. Like 
once upon a time, I think just like that little kid who was told that he was bad and wrong and had to lie to survive and all that, I had that like, this is what I do. This is what I do. And then I'm going to make money and I'm going to be okay. And I'll, you know, I have a company and I'll, people will like me and it'll all be fine. But that's like a fantasy too. Like, that's not why people like me. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it was all like, like control issues. And what meditation has done is I really release a lot of that through my meditation practice. Um, I still do an enormous amount of visualization. You know, I'm one of those geeks that like, you know, I'll be sitting in a cab and I'll go like, I can, I can do a five minute meditation in here. Oh yeah, and, no, no, I do that too. You got to get them to turn off the radio. Yeah, and you and you just, you know, I can close my eyes. I can start focusing on my breathing and and start going for it. Do you have a time of day that you usually do I, it? Every morning. Every morning. Every morning. How long? It varies between 15 and 20 minutes. I don't do it longer than that. I start to fall asleep if mm. I start to <laughs> push past <laughs> that. But the 15, 20 minutes um, is totally regular. But then I do it throughout the day when I see breaks. And particularly if I have agitation. Like my book is coming out today. And last night I had an unexpected and an unforeseen adrenaline rush because I suddenly... I'm just used to that. I'm wired to know when something is coming out, that means something's happening. And like, and like suddenly people are going to be, they're going to be judging something or whatever, but there's expectation involved in it. You know, I mean, that is what I've signed up for in Mm -hmm. every facet of my life, Mm but adrenaline comes with that. And my adrenaline got really high last night. And I was like, Oh boy, I don't know what to do with myself. I, you know, I was like really drumming my fingers and I knew I should meditate and I just did not want to meditate at all because I was like, that'll be a disaster. And then, you know, then I'll be mad at myself for meditating badly. (laughs) And then, you know, it became all this crazy circular um, thinking. And I ended up just going like, okay, just turn on the TV and sit down and just put on something that is going to make you feel comfortable, like a procedural. And I did, and I did. And then as I suddenly started sort of sinking into my body and just going like, oh, here I am, I started very automatically started doing that thing where I started regulating my breathing, focusing on it. I started feeling the points of contact where my body was on the bed and started just getting going inward in my body and thinking, and it, my I regulated and my body relaxed, and I became actually much more okay you know calm it's not that every moment is the right time to meditate like if you're freaking no. out i mean it's not throwing yourself in the lotus position is not going to fix all of your problems no not maybe at all. hitting a treadmill or watching something that's going to ease your mind makes better sense and then you can meditate yeah three giant deep breaths and big exhales will actually regulate me it'll actually bring my bring my stress level down really big inhales with really big exhales like you know even if i have to dash around the corner and go like because i don't want people to think i'm hyperventilating or something (laughs) but in but that's like when i'm really going nutty and i don't go nutty very much because i'm pretty calm most of the time you mentioned your book yeah tell me about it uh it was it's a ya book um i was uh, approached by a literary agent girl about town girl about town is the name of it and I was approached by a literary agent um, to do something that I believe was based on like my Twitter, like that, like, like I had this very like kind of funny. I have a funny way on Twitter, and and you know, coupled with how, what the the way that I was on So You Think You Can Dance, which was very much me, and the way I talked to those kids, because you know, I talked to those kids while I was judging. 
because I did not want them to feel judged. I want them to feel encouraged and supported. And so it was, you know, that's kind of who, which was very much me talking, wishing that this, somebody had spoken to me like this when I was auditioning, you know. So, or when you were a three-year-old. Or when I was a three-year-old. And um, yeah, I'm just saying it's okay. It's okay. It's good. So I went, okay. And he proposed a kind of a project. And I said, well, I would be interested in doing a kid's book. And I said, but listen, I'm in the middle of uh, multiple projects right now. I love collaborating. Can you find me a co-author? Um, not a ghostwriter, like, like a real collaborator. And they said, sure. And they sent me some materials from different people. And I found... Uh, a woman and who's now become my partner, Laura Sullivan, and who's written a lot of YA literature, but we, she was really interested in doing this kid's book with me. That project ended up falling through, but in the meantime, we got to talk a lot, and she just was like, hey, I think that you sh- should not stop writing. I think you should actually write, and I would love to write with you. I Would you be into any kind of YA stuff? And I was like, well, like what? And she said... You know, so she proposed this kind of she asked about a lot of my reading habits when I was young, which was a lot of mysteries, a lot of mysteries. And she said, well, you love Hollywood. Is there anything? I said, well, I, you know, it would be fun to do a young person's version of The Thin Man, you know, and try to create those characters. But in their, you know, kind of late teens, but have that kind of bantery kind of. I'm embarrassed. Quality. I don't uh, know. The Thin Man. The oh, Dashiell Hammett. It's a couple. Nick and Nora Charles. They're like, you know, a famous uh, detective couple that were in that a big series of movies were made of in the late thirties, forties, and then in the early fifties. So, gotcha. um, and so these are this is young people this doing is what young they did. Uh, it's young people that we created that have that kind of relationship. Gotcha. That and um, it's that sparkly bantery kind of relationship well, that it became famous on like TV shows like Heart to Heart and uh, and uh, I've I, I literally am now tailoring this so I, to, so you understand what I'm yes, talking about. Yes, yes. Moonlighting. I, yes. You know, it's, like, you, it's like you're, that. You're in my time frame. Okay, great. So, so uh, could you make this into a movie? Well, I, you could except that the market today I'm like, leave it to me to write something that doesn't seem like anybody would want to produce it right now. But if the book is successful, then, of course, somebody would want to make it. But it's it's a period mystery that has comedic leanings as well as suspense, but with young people in it. So it's like, I don't know who gets that movie made. It's like there's Elle Fanning or like what I'm I'm begging Selena Gomez to do this lead in a period mystery. It's all too mannered. It doesn't it doesn't fit with what's out there in the in the marketplace i mean the only person maybe it's a procedural maybe it well it, it could be a procedural like heart to heart and all of that but it would have to be cw and i don't know wh- who's doing young period pieces it's all set in the 1930s in hollywood that's expensive i've made a lot of stuff and i'm telling you it can be expensive i know you can do it cheaper but it's still it's still a thing listen I will say this. If the book is a hit, somebody's going to want to make it. Um, <laughs> You're looking at me like, I'm, I'm telling you. <laughs> I, mean, I just like, I, I, you know, I, I have a bias toward my own ideas. Yeah. Here's my last question for you. I have been meditating for a couple of years, and, and I've played the drum since I was 10, so I have some rhythm, but mm-hmm. I can't dance. Yeah, I mean, I, that's just not true. Um, like what you can't dance like Misty Copeland. Yeah, sure, maybe. But you can, I mean, everybody can get up there and step touch on the dance floor and do all that. I mean, dancing, I mean, 
dancing can be literally putting on music and just jumping around and flailing around off beat and doing something where you're just, you know, losing yourself in a sense of physical expression. And that that is what that is dancing. I mean, the stuff that you think about as dancing, that's like organized. You know, that's like no, it's rule about, it's laden. about unlocking your body and not feeling so self-conscious. And that's all on you. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I can't do it. And I would think that I'm working on my hey, mind. Hey, meditation guy. Yeah. What is it with I can't? That's such I, I mean, maybe you can't become an astronaut right now. Mm-hmm. You can dance like I like there's that's so on you. I don't have any sympathy for you right now. Like I can't dance. Yes, you can. <laughs> like I, I, you know, if we, if we put on music, I can make sure that you and by the way, I'm not going to do it. But I would make sure you're like, OK, now do this. And like, that. yeah, you just have to go like it doesn't matter. Have you ever jumped out of an airplane? No. You got it. It's the greatest thing in the world. It's like it fires your brain. Every single one of your survival instincts is going, do not do this. This is stupid. <laughs> this is very bad idea. You are very high in the air. You will absolutely this will die there. This makes no sense. And I've done it now many times because I could not believe the experience of it because the sheer act of getting past everything your brain is telling you and pushing past it and through it and then experiencing the unbelievable exhilaration of 1 million percent not being in control of what's happening and then suddenly taking control or control being taken because I did it in tandem and trust, having trust and then floating for all that time. But that adrenaline rush cleanses your brain like nothing else. It's like putting your brain through the best Maytag, Kenmore, whatever. Or like a colonic for the uh, it's brain. Like, yeah. I mean, uh, no, better. More more cleansing than a colonic because colonics <laughs> still leave stuff there. But it's like, um, like you know, that's a hell of a colonic if it's got everything. But, um, but it, it is... It is an extraordinary experience where you feel so pure and so clean and so amazing. I, I, I honestly cannot recommend it enough. I know it sounds insane and scary. No. But you will not think that there is anything you cannot do after you do that. I guarantee you. You make a very convincing argument. I'm actually taking it seriously. Uh, Adam Shankman, you are a delight. Thank you. Honest. As are you. Very. Thank you. Your honesty... Your humor, all of that, fantastic. Really appreciate it. Uh, Keep on meditating. I know you're going to go take a lesson with the TM guys soon. And uh, keep on making art and books. And uh, I look forward to watching your procedural when it airs on the Ah. CW in the the fall of 2018. Um, Thank you very much, man. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it. All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it, preferably five stars. I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. You can see a video version of this podcast at abcnews.com. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.